Readers, and welcome to the final episode of this special three-part series, Regions Reimagined, a partnership between Australia Remade and the wonderful Women's Health Goulburn Northeast. In the second half of 2022, we hosted a series of live panel discussions based around the three C's from our public good work, care, connection, and contribution. And each time we were joined by an incredible selection of experts who helped bring to life new possibilities for our regions and our communities. Whether it was proposing a four-day work week, throwing metaphorical fish back into the rivers, or love bombing those who would oppress us, each of these conversations will challenge, inspire, and delight you. Our final event was a wide-ranging and thought-provoking conversation with Greg James, Judy Horacek, and Ali Thwaites. I hope you've enjoyed these conversations just as much as I did. lovely to see everybody and um, welcome to Regions Reimagined, contributing to our community. So uh, my name is Amanda Kelly and I'm the CEO of Women's Health Goulburn Northeast. And I'd like to start our panel discussion this evening by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands from which we're all attending this evening. These lands and waterways that we live with today and it are an integral part of the oldest living culture in our world. So I want to pay my respects to our First Nations people that are here this evening. The path to treaty starts with truth-telling and truth is that colonisation has had a profound impact on our First Nations people. Now it's our job to listen, to stand back when needed and to stand to act when needed, to make sure that treaty is reality always was, always will be Aboriginal land. And always keeping in mind our First Nations peoples, we know that our communities are faced with intersecting crises, Um, the gender inequality, social and economic injustice, the climate crisis. All of these crises and more require us to come together to think about how we might better work together to imagine and create a more equitable future. Regions Reimagined is a collaboration between Women's Health Goulburn Northeast and Australia Remade. It takes the recent work from Australia Remade as its starting point to explore what people want for themselves and their communities. The three conversations in this series are centred around um, the themes distilled from Australia Remade's wide-ranging community conversations, which found that overwhelmingly people want connection, care and contribution. So in a moment, I will hand over to Dr. Millie Rooney, our moderator for this series of events, and she'll introduce our wonderful panellists. And together, um, they are going to finalise our series of discussions talking about connecting with our communities. But before I hand over, I just want to do a tiny little bit of housekeeping. Um, Tonight's discussion, as you will have realised coming in, is being recorded. Uh, If you need closed captions, please enable them Um, and please feel free to use the chat to engage as we go. And if you think and find the chat is distracting, then please turn it off. That's fine. Um, 
please also feel free to use your biggest facial expressions. Um, use the chat, waggle your eyebrows, nod your head, use your hands like I am. Um, this is, yes, thank you. This is how we can contribute to this evening's um, event. And um, we will absolutely have time for questions. So we'd love to hear from you. Um, so we're asking that you put your questions in the chat. Lauren will be keeping uh, track of those and um, she will be asking the panellists. So please, as something comes to mind, pop it in the chat and, and we'll be looking out for it. So I first met Millie a couple of years ago as she was embarking on the research for the paper, Reclaiming Our Purpose, It's Time to Talk About the Public Good. Um, at Women's Health Goldman Northeast, we work in primary prevention. So that is, we work to find the conditions where women in particular, but all members of our communities, have what they need to live lives of optimal health and wellbeing. And this is where our work and that of Australia Remades intersects. If we don't imagine what the public good can be, then how can we have a community that supports us all to live our best lives? So these conversations are an important part of us creating the communities we want to live in to reimagine our regions the way we want them to be. So I'd like to introduce Dr Millie Rooney now. You can read Millie's bio on our website, so I won't read it out for you. But I just have to say that Millie has been the driver of these conversations and has brought her thoughtful and compassionate self to this work while holding a really big picture in mind. So I would like to hand over to Millie now. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amanda. And thanks for asking people to use their big facial expressions. I can see the clapping. That's awesome. Um, thumbs up. Thanks, Sharon. So please do feel free to put your video on. I know not everyone's comfortable with that, but if you are, it's, it's really helpful for myself and the panellists to get that feedback. So we'd love to see your faces. You can be eating dinner, washing the dishes, whatever. That's fine. So it is my great pleasure to be here today um, with these fantastic speakers. Uh, and it's been a really wonderful journey to collaborate with Women's Health Goldwyn Northeast because at Australia Remade we do this really big picture thinking about well what's the vision for the world that we want, what's the big collective yes, and what's the structural change that has to happen. And so it's brilliant to work with an organisation that's actually on the ground doing that work. So it's a, it's a really lovely collaboration. Um, and a big thank you to Amanda and Lauren and Danny um, and Irene who've done a lot of that behind the scenes work. So as Amanda said, this is the third in the conversation series around care, connection and contribution. And when we asked people around the country, well, what do you want for you and your communities? They very quickly said, people said, we want homes, we want jobs, we want education, healthcare, access to nature and access to the internet. None of that is probably surprising to anyone. But the fact that people then said so clearly and so strongly, I want to care and be cared for. I want to be able to connect with people in place and I want to be able to contribute both locally and nationally. I think a real reminder there that is about the quality of how we live, not, not just the kind of physical infrastructure. So we wanted to say, well, what does it look like to put these three things at the very heart of who we are and what we do? And so we've had some incredible guests joining us already. Uh, we had Beth Thornber, Anna Greta Hunter and Matt Grogan chatting with us about why care is important and how we might reimagine it in our communities. And some things that emerged from that conversation were me, for me were things like throw back your babies, meaning to throw back the baby fish so that the communities downstream have access. Value care as a policy choice and not just a personal conversation and recognise time as a really essential care infrastructure. 
Um, and then the second conversation built on that, and we had Emily, Jasper Peach, and our very own Amanda Kelly talking about connection. And that was a, actually a really moving conversation for those of you who were there. It was, it was quite magical, really, thinking about the idea of radical love in the face of oppression, the kind of human ecology of places and the niches that each of us fill, and the power of boundaries to both enable and inhibit connection. And so this month we're talking about contribution and in the work with Australia Remade, people could see really formal pathways to cont contribute. So voting, you know, participating in surveys, et cetera. But there was a really strong sense that people wanted the ability to really actually engage properly. Um, many people, particularly women, felt that their contributions were just falling through the cracks. So doing all this stuff and it's just never recognised as valuable. Um, and the fact that the pressures of modern life often leave so little time to connect. Um, and as someone said, you know, back to the issue of time, some people have no time, other people have too much. How do we share that? How do we free up time for each other to be citizens, which I thought was an interesting question. So we're here to talk about why contribution matters, how we can do it better, and what kind of infrastructure, and I don't just mean the physical infrastructure, I mean the other sort of social settings in place that we need um, to enable it. So with that in mind, um, I want to acknowledge that I'm here on the lands of the Muanina people in Lutruwida, Tasmania, and I pay my respects to Elders past and present um, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders on the call today. Um, and I want to acknowledge that the extraordinary history of connection that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have to this country that we call Australia and a type of connection that results in deep care for place and culture. A connection through time, like more than 60,000 years to this place. And I, I can't imagine what it would feel like to be so deeply rooted um, to this land um, and for this to have continued vibrantly um, for so many years. And I was reflecting how to weave contribution into this acknowledgement and, and actually how I'm finding it harder than care and connection. And I think that was because sometimes the language of contribution can be really transactional, um, you know, we'll measure it like this if you do this. Um, and it's so very tied to a Western idea of, of what is considered worth offering. Um, so it was an interesting thing for me to notice, like, oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. So I hope today that we can expand how we think about contribution and to learn from all the three speakers here about how to put these expanded ideas into practice in a way that benefits us all and acknowledges this really deep history. So we're so lucky to be finishing this series with three amazing panellists. We've got counsellor and Yorta Yorta man, Greg James, uh, cartoonist, Judy Horacek, um, and educator and youth advocate, Ali Thwaite. So I'm going to read their bios briefly, a little snippets of it, but as you will see as the conversation goes, these bios are, are, are not really, don't really capture how extraordinary these people are. So Greg James is a very proud Yorta Yorta man, born in Marupna. We also discovered just prior to this, Judy was also born in Marupna, so that's a lovely little connection, um, and has lived in the Goulburn Valley most of his life. He's the father of two wonderful children, um, and he attended school in Shepparton and then Melbourne University with two degrees in education. Um, Greg holds positions as, very, as a representative on lots of different boards and is a really active member within the community, community sport, and as an Aboriginal artist in a number of mediums. Um, he was also elected to the Greater Shepparton Council in 2020 and the first Indigenous person to be elected as councillor. Um, so we'll get, to, we'll get to them in a moment. Oh, good, good moving in the audience. Thank you. Um, 
Judy Horacek is a cartoonist, writer and children's bookmaker. Ten collections of her cartoons have been published. When I saw that, I thought, I've only got three of them. What am I I'm missing? Seven <laughs> to, the, to the bookshop. Um, uh, the most recent one of which is Now or Never. And her cartoons are often concerned with the environment, feminism and social justice. And recently she collaborated with the Flying Fruit Flies Circus on Girls with Altitude, a wonderful show of circus meets cartoons. Um, she creates children's books on her own and also with Memfox, including the beloved Where is the Green Sheep? Um, and she's also a printmaker and, and regularly exhibits her artwork. And then finally, we have Ali Freitz, who is an educator and a leader. Um, she has a master's in primary and special education teaching and continues to teach and also work in various youth and environmental leadership roles. She currently works with Oz Green um, and most recently supporting various Northeast and Victorian councils to run climate congresses for young local people, or for young people. Um, she's the founder of the Australian Youth for International Climate Engagement Working Group um, and founder and leader of Indigo Shire Youth for Climate Action. So that's just a tiny snippet into um, the panellists we have today. So uh, the three of you, Ali, Greg and Judy, I can see you on my screen. Um, you've all made actually really significant and recognisable contributions to society in, a, in really different ways. Um, and I'm going to ask you all similar questions. So I'm going to start with you, Greg. As a Yorta Yorta man and a local councillor, what, is, what does contribution mean to you? What does it mean to meaningfully contribute? Sure. Um, firstly, can I just thank uh, Amanda for that lovely acknowledgement? Um, and can I also um, uh, pay respects to my, my ancestors and I acknowledge my elders, both past, present and emerging? And can I also organise, uh, acknowledge the organisers of tonight's event and a and acknowledge the panel members and all our guests on live here tonight. So thank you and, and welcome to everyone. Um, contribution. Um, uh, I, I've sort of, I've, I'm, I'm putting this through my lens as a respected elder. Um, and it's, I'm, I'm sort of finding it hard to come to terms with the word elder. Um, you know, I'm 63 years of age and I, I'm, I still got that youthful bling about me. And when um, people in my community say an elder, I really can Find it hard to come to terms with that that elder. I think, oh yeah, just because I've got grey hair doesn't mean that I'm an elder, but um, it's something which is bestowed on you, of course. And I'm absolutely honoured by that um, that by that title, of course. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, coming back to the subject. So I, tonight, I I put it in the context. Of my comments will be from my perspective as an elder, giving advice to my younger generations and the next next leaders. So the advice that I give is from my perspective as an elder, giving advice to our, our young champions and our leaders that are coming through. Um, so um, my apologies if I do um, come across in a text of this is from my, my the next generation and us older generation guys, we've got a responsibility to play in regards to leadership, of course. Um, but I've I've couched uh, and I've couched some of my responses around that. So um, so if I, I go to the, the I've, I've sort of basically involved my first comments around care and connection, and that's really essential. It's a vital component to our culture. Um, and these two words, they resonate very strongly um, with who, who we are and where we are from. And it's our existence 
basically it's what what we do uh in our ancestors philosophy and our footsteps is about that care and connection and i mean it's absolutely essential and vital for us as first nations people many of our conversations of course from uh the word care and it's uh, it's about it's motherly actions too as well and it's also um it's instinct as well is about care and care and caring care about yourself and this is what we're philosophy we teach our, our kids and our gen- generations is care about yourself but also how you can conduct yourself and personally around other people too as well also about um care about your immediate family your extended family and the community whether you are a visitor or you're a permanent resident on your space too as well care about your mother country and other countries around the world so we try to teach our children to say yes it's very important for you to um you know to respect your mother country but also respect the countries that are associated on our globe on the worldwide map too as well because at some stage we were all connected and then we all were separated by by sea um so we encourage our children to look at worldwide issues and worldwide viewpoints as well so care about that and care about other countries as well care about our elderly citizens um for from all colors and creeds too as well and that's very important for us to understand that um it's one of the things that we need to teach our children and um it's it's really important in regards to how we can uh in a reconciliation way um live and work together and my little organization rumbleara aboriginal cop is one of the prime examples of reconciliation how it can work and work quite well with people who um uh you know are receptacle to people from other cultures and acceptance of first nations people and other cultures working together as an example my as i say my organization um has 280 staff um but out of that 280 staff we have 140 that are non-indigenous um so it's a great example of reconciliation how it works and it's a great model um but i i'm very proud of that as a chairperson and i um scott scott that and speak very openly about how this model is a great model because it's encompassing of people from other cultures and here in shepparton um because we are a multicultural community but i i see it as a very cosmopolitan um community because we've got 41 different languages that are spoken in our in our small little town um so um so we of yeah, obviously uh, uh you know address the the reconciliation process and i um and i'm quite proud of that too as well um as to say that we're an organization that um that has um you know has grown quite dramatically but we're also uh embracing people from other cultures too as well at the same time uh be proud of who we are and our contribution as first nations people and how important that is to the rest of our community too as well um so we say for for caring for our country and our land and our water waterways well that's as i said earlier that's ingrained in our dna um and how that um is important for us to understand the the many animals that are associated with the land and environment the insects and everything which makes up uh this fantastic um land that we live on caring for life and what um what it presents to you as well um and care for others around you and respect everything um 
And I think that what we come from small and humble beginnings, but we have a huge history associated with that too as well. Um, and uh, we, you know, we're and I like that that theme that I always have carried from my life is the song song from um, from little things, big things grow. And I see that from my organisation, and I've essentially carried that right through my life too as well. And I've used that as my motivation to say from big things, you know, from little things, big things grow. And that's why I took my sort of campaign when I stood for council is to say, um, this is where um, this is where I want to go. I'm, I'm, you know, from little things, and I want it to take it to the next level in my aspirations from here and and being that sort of career pathway for my younger generations. So caring and connection is very important for us. It's it's part of our DNA, it's part of our culture. It provides us our strength too as well to to tackle anything that is, is presented in front of us as well. Thank you. And I'm, I've got some specific questions I wanna delve into for you, Greg, but I'll go to Judy and Ali and then kind of bring you together. Um, and it's fascinating as well to hear you talk about, you know, respect your country and other countries as well. And that was a theme that came out so strongly in that first conversation was how boundaries can be so arbitrary in terms of what we care for and what we don't care for. So it's interesting to hear that again. Um, so, Judy, you're a feminist cartoonist and bookmaker and, and many other things. What about for you? What does contribution mean to you and, and what does it mean to meaningfully contribute? Um, that's such a big question. I was <laughs> thinking about it going, right. Um, well, when I um, started being a cartoonist and I called myself a feminist cartoonist and it was because I wanted to do cartoons that had women in them because I discovered feminism and this idea that actually everything wasn't just going to be okay. You know, I grew up with that idea of, well, you know, women just have to be better and I'm going to be great. And then you hit the systemic reasons that that's not there. And that's when I started doing cartoons, I suppose I, all my life I wanted to be an artist or a writer or something, contribute in that kind of way, and cartooning fell into my lap as a perfect thing to do then. I'd, um, there just really weren't women in cartoons when I started doing cartoons. Someone recently gave me a book, a punch collection of psychiatry cartoons, and it was, there's about you know 200 cartoons in there, and I went 50 pages before there was a single woman. So every patient, every psychiatrist was um, male, and then the first woman was kind of a thought bubble of some sexy woman in you know the patient's head. So that was the kind of environment that there was. There weren't any women news readers. They weren't I'm making myself sound really ancient, but this isn't that long ago. This is the 80s, which I know for some people it is that long ago. But you know, it's it's um, there weren't women in comedy. Any women who did stand up and try and do comedy it was just it was such a hard gig. They had to be so so strong to put up with all of that. So I think I'm part of this whole bunch of women who just said, we're going to contribute, we're going to be part of the conversation, we're going to be out there, we're going to put our work out there and just keep doing it. And the first cartoons, you know, when I started doing cartoons, it was fine if I was doing a cartoon about a women's issue, but if I was doing something about occupational health and safety, people would be looking at it and going, well, there's a woman in it, I don't understand the childcare reference or the menstruation reference, what's happening? And you're going, no, no, it's about protective equipment when you work doing a dangerous job. And so that has shifted and I think. Um, I think, you know, I think I contributed to that. So that was nice to sort of think about this whole thing um, and 
do that. I also do children's books. I did my first children's book with Mem Fox, although doing children's books, picture books was one of the first ambitions I remember having, but, um, but I didn't, I started doing it with that first book, which was an incredible success. And if only we knew why Where is the Green Ship is so beloved, we would have done a couple more. Like, you know, if we thought we could just do Where is the um, Purple Sheep and get going with that, then we would be there. So that um, is amazing. With picture books, uh, you're working with children and I just want to, you know, I have this idea that I want them to think that the world is a place of fun and happiness and joy and humour and wackiness. And so, you know, and there's similar themes often in my cartoons about that as well. And so um, that's another way, you know, that I feel I've contributed. And when I had to, was thinking about, oh, maybe I'll just call myself when people go, oh, what do you do? And I sort of do a lot of different things and I take a lot of photographs and I put them on Instagram, but I might call myself, call myself a contributor. That's my, <laughs> that's my job, you know, putting things out into the world. And it's sometimes hard listening to the previous conversations where we're so tied into financial reward as our measure of success and you know in cartooning and in the art exhibitions I have and in even in children's books apart from where is the green sheep it's not really very well financially rewarded so you know according to capitalist rules you just go you're an idiot do something else um but that's um you know it brings me a, a lot of joy and it's sort of it is what I do so I try not to get bound up in in those um those things, you know, and as long as you've got enough money to live on, then, you know, the rest of it's just icing on the cake, isn't it? So, um, which, you know, and they would do all those studies that over a certain amount, you don't feel any happier anyway. So, you know, just um, that's, so I'm kind of, kind of drifting off into all different directions. But anyway, that's, that's who I am. And that's what I've done. And I've done a lot of books now, which is um, wonderful. And sometimes I just look at them and I go, oh, it's kind of embarrassing. I've done so many books and yet I'm not, you know, I don't know, a Kardashian or something. And <laughs> <laughs> why that came to mind. That's the last thing in the world I would want to be. But I mean, I think you raised some such fascinating things, Judy, around co- the value of contribution being as something that feels right and good for you, you know, like that joy and knowing that you wanted to be an illustrator and an artist and a cartoonist and a writer and those things but also how we get mashed up against expectations of what valuable, valid contribution looks like, I, I think is a really important issue. Um, and I know that in previous conversations with um, yourself and Greg and Ali, you know, these things are coming up again. So I want to get into them in a minute. Um, Ali, what about you? Um, you're an educator, youth advocate, leader. What does it mean to meaningfully contribute to you? Um, yeah, like Judy said, it's an enormous question. And I, we my initial thought was kind of like, well, everything, whatever you want it to mean. Um, and so I think I might have overthought it a little bit and I've um, broken it down a bit too much perhaps. But I actually wanted to, to look at um, the question was around meaningful contribution to community. And I wanted to look at sort of all the different aspects of that and what it can mean to, to different people because I think it is so subjective and it's always going to be different. I want to start with community because what even is community. And it's probably a conversation that you've had in, in previous um, discussions as well. And I think Greg was sort of touching on it as well, that community can be, you know, seen at so many different levels and in so many different places. It can be, you know, a geographical local community, the people in your town. Um, it can be that national level, that that global level. And as Greg said, the importance of thinking about our connection community with people, you know, internationally and the responsibility that we have 
to, to them as well. Um, it can be specific to like a cultural or religious or social group. You know, someone is part of a community that's, you know, the Dungeons and Dragons community of Australia or whatever, like, you know, if someone's contributing in that space and that's the space that they're a really prominent, important person, most people in the community outside of that are not going to have a clue how they're contributing. But, but you know, seeing that we can all have these different communities and these different spaces and then thinking that beyond, you know, people, does our community also involve our natural environment um, and, you know, these, these beautiful parts of the world that we're, we're lucky enough to live in and the responsibility that we have to our community beyond beyond the people that we live around as well to, to nature and to, to the plants and animals around us. Um, and is it inclusive communities of the future? Are we just thinking about our community now? Are we thinking about the impact that we're going to have on communities looking forward? So what is community to start with? <laughs> and then what is contribution? I mean, also incredibly subjective can mean all sorts of different things. Um, to me, I think ultimately it's about trying to make things better. Um, some way, shape or form, the way that you see it, the way that you feel it, like Judy said, it's about what you feel you can contrib contribute to make things better. Um, and it can look like so many different things. It can look like, you know, what we see is, you know, volunteering in a well-known formal sort of space, you know, your local op shop, your um, Red Cross, your, um, you know, land care, whatever kind of space that looks like, something that people would recognise and know, you know, it can look like contributing in that more activist kind of way, um, being that feminist cartoonist or being that first, you know, Indigenous person to be elected to a council and being, you know, lobbying for something or pushing for something, being those kids standing up um, the school strike for climate events and pushing for what happens. It can look like those kind of things. Um, it can be, um, as Judy mentioned as well, I think contributing through your work. Um, a lot of us do jobs that aren't, you know, super well paid, but we do them because we love what we're doing and we're really passionate about the impact that it's going to have. And that's people who in education and in healthcare um, and, you know, disability carers and, um, you know, hairdressers and there's so many people who, who work in a space because they know that they get to connect to their community and contribute to that their community in that space and I just remember you know as a kid a fairly nerdy kid growing up in a small country town there weren't necessarily always a lot of spaces where I felt you know safe and welcome and um, happy but our local bookshop was absolutely one of those and that was a, a business people working but you know Mary and um, Kim who ran the bookshop they would let me come and sit there for hours and, you know, read all the books and set up displays for them and they'd go and get me hot chocolates. And for me, that was just a safe space. And that wasn't part of their job. That was just them, you know, doing what they could to contribute to our community to make it a better place for other people. Um, and, you know, people who put themselves in the public eye and that's people who, you know, might be on committees and um, working in council and those kind of things, but also people who are elected representatives at all levels of government. And whether you agree with people's politics or not, you know, running for election and then being, you know, an elected member of government at any level is a really, really hard um, and exhausting and often quite thankless in some ways job. Um, and, you know, but that's people putting themselves out there because they're only going to do it if they believe that they're going to try and make things better for the community. Um, can be carers, um, you know, carers for, for family members, for, for other people in the community. Um, I'm a, a carer for my my nan, um, my 93-year-old nan a lot of the time. Um, and I just know, you know, for other people who have a lot more time in their lives spent on caring as well, I just know what a thankless job it can often be and an exhausting job that it can often be. And especially when you're caring for family, often not a financially um, rewarding job in any way, shape or form. But, um, you know, just an, someone, a job that somebody's got to be doing 
and lots of somebody's got to be doing and so valuable to, to people, um, but not really well recognised. Um, people who go around the communities often unnoticed um, and look after those people who are a bit isolated from the community, the people who may be, you know, elderly or have mental health issues or, um, you know, people with disabilities and, you know, someone who just goes out and has a chat and a cuppa with those people, helps them with something around the house, you know, maybe drives them into an appointment, often not formalised in any way, shape or form. They're never going to be recognised, never going to be on the front page of the paper or given a, you know, community citizenship award or something but they're the people who are actually making people's lives better in you know in the day-to-day um communicators and 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 teachers of sort of cultural and religious knowledge about in all sorts of different community groups um you know people who are who are sharing that that learning and those ethics and morals and stuff through art and storytelling and whatever that might look like you know building communities that are strong um people who are caring for that you know the beautiful land that we live on i'm lucky enough to live on a bush property just out of beechworth um, and, you know, just, we were just talking to the others before, before the event started about the um, koalas that have been mating outside of, uh, inside of my window very loudly. Um, but, um, you know, people who are out there either in a formal sense or in an informal sense looking after that environment and learning about it and teaching about it and understanding it. Um, one, I'm just going to end with for contribution on one last story because I love this story and it might be one you've heard before, but this is about... Um, Nathan, um, also known as Carrot Man, you might have heard of his story shared through um, Humans of Melbourne. Um, and he's a he's a man who's on a disability pension. So he's someone who we would often think couldn't contribute very well to community. Perhaps, you know, there's not a lot of spaces or options for, for him to do that. But um, he's found his own very unique way. He was um, uh, carrying a giant turnip that he got from an op shop one day through the streets of Melbourne and um, got all these smiles and laughs and everywhere he went people were just smiling at him so he thought huh that's interesting so he started carrying different giant things around to see the reactions he got and he carried you know giant squids and giant octopus octopuses octopi and those kind of things to see and discovered that the carrot giant paper mache carrot that he made had the best responses and the most smiles so what he does is every now and again when he feels like people need a bit of a pick-me-up you might you know be listening to the news and hear that there's a protest happening and people are getting a bit violent he'll get out there with his carrot and just walk around town with his carrot so that people can can see and smile and you know diffuse that tension a little bit so <laughs> lots of different ways for people to contribute was the point of all that and finally I know I'm probably talking for way too long really but finally um touching on meaningfully meaningfully what does meaningfully mean um and like the others or even more so probably it is a completely subjective idea and is totally based on you know our cultures our experiences our background our values our biases what we're going to determine as being meaningful um and it's going to look really different for all of us um and the problem is that the types of contribution that are often most visible and obvious and well recognized like volunteering through um you know well-established organizations and everything often quite exclusive um their spaces that people only people who are quite privileged are able to engage with and work in um because generally full of fairly white uh fairly well off fairly highly educated often out older um, age group um, and often very often women that's not necessarily on the privileged side but that's just the, the, the way that those spaces are usually are usually built and I know it's it's a huge privilege to have the time to put into that kind of volunteering 
um, when you don't, you know, you're not, you don't have to be spend putting all that time instead into paid work and into, care, you know, unpaid caring for family members and everything. So, so they're very privileged spaces and very exclusive spaces. And I certainly know that I am one of those very privileged people who have been able to put my time into those formalised volunteering spaces. Um, but that's something we do have to think about is are we recognising contributions um, and finding contributions meaningful when they're not in those kind of spaces. And the one last thing I wanted to touch on um, was around um, uh, maybe the contrast between how uh, older people and younger people think of contribution and volunteering. I'm going to stop you, Ali, because <laughs> okay. you've thrown 50 Sorry. million things at me and I want to come back to that because I think that's a super important point and just want to give everyone a moment to pause and take in the, like, very beautiful broad picture that Ali went, went too far <laughs> no not at all I just I want to be able to delve into this stuff properly so I've, I've bookmarked the age thing because I think it's super important um and I, I think that what you've just done is given us this really like beautiful examples of how contribution ha- is is very personal it's also very much about the context we're in, about whether it's meaningful for ourselves or whether the outside world sees it as meaningful. Um, and I loved your framing of contribution is making things better in some way. And you're, you're pointing out as hairdressers, as, as people who contribute for all sorts of different reasons, um, I think is, is, is really just lovely that you noted that. Greg, one of the things that I think both Ali and Judy kind of raised is is that stuff around um, contribution and enoughness and whether what you bring is enough and um, how the world sees you. When we were prepping for this conversation, you were telling me about your involvement with the Koori Court and what that means in terms of contribution and um, particularly for the Aboriginal community. Can you just bring that into the conversation a little? Yeah, sure, sure. Um uh, well, obviously, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, crimes in our in our community, and and um, traditionally our mob have been, um, you know, very well represented within the court systems, and um, and our Curry Court in Shepparton has been operating for twenty years now, and it's about um, it's about us taking hold of a, taking hold of responsibilities of the offenders in our community, and um, and that. The Curry Court was a program which was set up um, out of goodwill by uh, the county court systems, the magistrates and judges, saying, "I don't want to sit here and, and impose sentencing on um, you know offenders or we call them participants um, uh, because you know we're cladding the the the, uh, the penal system um, and basically what the cost per ratepayer is astronomical." I want to look at some other options and I want to involve elders in regards to uh, the sentencing and the incarceration and, and et cetera in that process. So the Koori court system was set up primarily for um, the offenders or participants. When they come to the Koori court system, they have to plead guilty to come to that situation. Now, it's quite a damning process and quite a, a very daunting process for the offenders because they actually there 
with not only the judge, but they've got two elders on either side that are absolutely hammering him about and saying to them, um, explain your actions and explain to us um, from a cultural sense um, why you are doing this, that why you committed these offences and the ramifications of that and also about um, from a justice point of view from, um, you know, the witnesses. Um, so um, when we go through that process, the judge will wait till he's sentencing to impose a sentence until the two elders have had their opportunity to speak with the with the uh, uh, participant or the offender, and then absolutely we then drill them to say, you know, what are your consequences of this? Do you realise what that has done to the to the to the victims? Um, and then you are bringing our culture, your culture, and your tribe, my tribe, into disrepute by doing this. And so it is that that victim um, shaming uh, process. And you know, during the over the last twenty years, the statistics have shown quite clearly the drop in reoffending rates because um, the participants go to the Koori court and they've got two elders absolutely hammering them about you know their actions and their responsibilities. But what is essential to that is about um, the the programs from them uh, in their incarceration, like within without incarceration, they come. And then the community and the elders take responsibility for um, re, re, um, you know, retraining and reprogramming uh, the offender back in. But a lot of them involve the Koori camps and Koori strengthening camps where we take them back on country. So it's a connection to country. But at the same time, um, we sit them in what we call our yarning circle. Now, the yarning circle is a very powerful um, process. Um, Powerful conversations come from yarning circles. And I don't know if anyone's been involved in a yarning circle, but um, how we do it with our younger generation is that we put them inside that circle and we say, now this is a circle of truth. So um, the, the moderator or the elder in that case will have, the, the, have our juvenile uh, uh, young men in that circle. Um, on, and, and it can be um, you know, uh, youth and also young men too as well. The Curry Court system goes up to... Uh, 30, 30, year, 30 ages and above, 18 to 30, to 30 year olds. But the power of that circle is that to say the moderator, when you're in that circle, you are compelled to tell the truth. Now, truth telling is very, very much essential part of our culture. Um, and then we give them a, another option too, as well to say, this is a truth circle. So you are compelled to be in this circle. But there is another circle outside this one. If you want to go into that circle, you are welcome to go in there. But whilst you're in this one, you are compelled to tell the truth, have to be honest, and to be a man or, or you know, in the case for the females, is to stand up and also present yourself. But make sure that you are truthful, you maintain your integrity, and also um, about who you are and what you are. Um, but it's really powerful in the... In, in, the the way that it's presented, but the way that it's um, you know the the resources and also the options and pathways from there too as well. But what it does it 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 um, it tells our community well we need we need to take responsibility of what is happening in our community and let's not accept that too as well. But it also is a guidance for us to say okay well obviously we need some more support in regards to 
the drug and alcohol issues that are and burglaries that are happening in our community. So it is more of a, a, a neighbourhood watch, but it's also saying to our community and to our parents where their children are running out of their homes, homes at night to say, you need to, take, you need to take responsibility and more control of actions about what your children um, are doing at home as well. So it, it, raises, it raises many issues to say, um, well, the community needs to be, um, you know, more alert, more aware, um, aware of what's happening too as well and be responsible for that too as well. I think, Greg, one of the things that was really powerful when we were talking about this before was that you were saying to me that it's not just that, that when the folks are in that elders circle and that, that truth-telling, that it was um, they were compelled to contribute to that process and compelled to step into cultural responsibility um, and that there's that, like, compelled to contribute to the conversation and to kind of owning and, and proudly walking in that culture. And uh, um, forgive me if I'm quoting you wrong, but you were saying, you know, to the young people, you say you are walking, living, breathing culture. And, you know, your culture is your biggest asset and, and you know, you are the contribution. And I, I just thought that was such a, a powerful statement of enoughness, you know, like we are actually... I'd be really interested, Judy, in your response to this as well, um, and Ali, but at Australia Made, one of the things that I often think about is that idea of universalism. Like we are all as humans enough, you know, it doesn't matter what we've done or where we've come from or what we're doing, but all of us should be worthy of, you know, being housed, being fed, being being cared for. And I think that raises really interesting things when we when we start to segment out what is valid or, or not valid contribution. Um, and Judy, one of the things we talked about when we were prepping for this conversation, um, and you, you mentioned it before, I think, was you know the invisible, the fact that there weren't women in cartoons. And you said something to me like, you know, cartoons are a space where you can create something that doesn't yet exist. Um, and I think you did that in terms of like a material thing of putting cartoons with women in them in the public, but you also were able to put different representations of different types of families that, that weren't yet seen before. So I, I think there's some, um, yeah, that idea of, of bringing in what, what wasn't seen before and validating it as, as real. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Um, well, that's certainly one thing that I always do in my cartoons was try and um, have people looking like they're from different racial backgrounds, which is quite hard in my style because it's, you know, my dots are tiny eyes and um, and I it's interesting that that should come because not many people were doing that and it was and everything was published in black and white as well. So um, there weren't tones, you know, so it was hard. Now you can just put brown paint on somebody or you know all those different colors but back then you couldn't and so um that was interesting to do that and again it was similar to having women in there where you're going oh well you know his person of color this obviously must be this can't be a cartoon about um road safety or whatever because um because of that I think what's interesting in my work now is that I haven't I have to update how I've done those so in fact I've always been quite proud of having racially diverse people in my um, books and in my cartoons, but now I have to kind of find more sensitive ways of, I think we constantly have to, to do that to sort of um, say, um, 
And it's hard because I haven't found it as yet, you know, a way to, in my simple style, draw somebody who's obviously um, of Asian background or um, and or or just to just colour someone in black. You can go there a black person because of that. So, so that, um, it, it's funny because that contribution, your contributions don't stand in in a sort of solidified way. You have to go well, okay, someone did that, and then someone else did that, and I think we can see that in. Um, Certainly, in people, white people writing literature featuring Indigenous people, that you know, once upon a time they weren't even there. And Dorothy Hewitt comes to mind, who was a friend of mine. I used to do her typing for her, and um, or some of her typing for her. And she said, "Oh, so much better than when my kids do it because you don't criticise me all the time." So <laughs> try and change my words. But she was one of the first people in her plays who was using putting Indigenous people in as human you know, as characters, as people with their own lives and their own thoughts and their own beliefs. But then, you know, come 20 years on, you have Indigenous actors saying, we're not we're not doing those roles because these are racist representations. And so it's um it's it's quite hard to sort of be that, you know, and certainly that was never Dorothy's intention and she was kind of this trailblazer. So it's sort of, you know, you have this this to and fro as well. Um and it was um was Think, yeah, I was thinking something about respect, that we don't sort of respect what people were trying to do. And you can't take that too far and go, oh, well, you know, they didn't mean any harm because obviously some people are doing things that are very harmful and just because they didn't mean any harm doesn't mean that they shouldn't have looked around a little bit more and saw that they were doing harm and sought out the things that might tell them what they were doing was harm. But that's about... Um, you know, it's in a way it's about respecting our elders who have led us this far and then we, you know, go further from them, which is probably not where you meant me to go with that question at all, Millie, but that's... Well, um... look, that's like that is the beauty of these conversations, right? They go where you don't think. And I, I think that <laughs> that point about the layering up of contribution and contribution as not being static, and I think there's sort of a few things there. Like one, you can't rest on your laurels and be like, well, when I was 25, I did this and therefore I'm... Yeah, I was the first person to do this. Yeah. That's right. Thank you. I'll like feed me yeah. down. Like, I think that idea of one, it's not static, and two, that how we, you know, I'm thinking of phyllo pastry, you know, how we get places, maybe it's dinner time, but, you know, is that is that constant layering of of different contributions that bounce off each other and and, and none of us are alone in that. So I think, um, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting element of contribution that I hadn't thought about it. Like it's, and, and Greg, I think you and I had had that conversation about, or, or it's something that's coming up is it's not just it's the personal and the community and how that both are important and both overlay um yeah Ali I thought um bouncing off Judy that that point you were going to make and I cut you off about about age I think is really interesting you know Judy saying that when you were typing and your friend said oh the kids don't criticize I mean because the kids have all these other layers that that they bring um yeah do you want to respond to to this yeah, sure. Um, I might, in fact, before I talk about um, young people, I just wanted to respond to something else um, that sort of came to mind when, when Judy was speaking, um, which is around as, you know, white um, people and white women in these kind of spaces that are often dominated by, by white people and white women, sometimes the best contribution that we can make is stepping back um, and providing a space for, for other people to step up. Um, and I think that's something I particularly experience and hear about a lot working in youth organisations um, where 
you know, even when I was first involved in a lot of these organisations, they were fairly, fairly white spaces. Uh, and now we're getting more diverse people coming into those spaces. Um, and they're having to do all the work in that. They're having to say to us, actually, you know, we need you to create a space that is more safe for us and is, is a space that we have the chance to, to step up and to, to grow because we have all these systems that have been built over a very long period of time. And, you know, we can say, oh, but, you know, I'm a woman and it's really important that women lead in these spaces and it is, but these problems are not that simple. They're, they're intersectional. And, you know, as a white woman, I'm, you know, more privileged than people of colour, um, man, man or woman, usually in these kind of spaces. So so knowing that that often the best thing that I can do um, to contribute is to provide space for others to, to shine and to show what they can do. Um, and... Um, that's the case with with people from diverse backgrounds, but it's also the case with younger people um, in terms of, you know, there are so many sort of youth spaces that are not really led by young people. Um, and as a, as a not really very young person anymore, a person who's been involved in youth organisations for so many years, but I'm now 31 and I cannot pretend to call myself a young person anymore. It's been a real learning for me in the last couple of years to be like, okay, well, I really have to step back and see my role as being a supportive role of you know, how do, how do I make this a space where young people can build their capacity and their confidence and, and shine in what they do? Um, so, so that's one, one point I want to make. The other point I want to make about youth organisations and, and youth spaces is, um, you know, there's often this perspective amongst older generations, and you particularly hear it from baby boomers a lot, that, oh, young people are disengaged, you know, they don't care about politics and they're not, you know, acting on this or that. And you seem hear it all the time <laughs> in the, the mainstream media. And um, as someone who's worked in these youth organisations for many years, but also as an educator of young people, I just know that that is not true at all. <laughs> and I'm sure that many of you have experienced that that's not true at all as well. Um, but young people engage in really different ways <laughs> to what, um, you know, the older generations engage with. And those kind of older spaces are not necessarily particularly appealing or welcoming to young people. Um, and so, and so they're, they're, they're working in different spaces, they're volunteering in different spaces, they're doing things differently. Um, but one thing about those youth spaces that I've experienced is that they're also incredibly competitive spaces a lot of the time. They're not always in and of themselves spaces that are welcoming of every young person. Um, and they can lead you to feel like, and this is, I think, a topic that's kind of come up a few times, and I, I know Judy mentioned it before, but can lead you to feel like maybe you're not enough. <laughs> the, the, the contribution that you're making is not enough because you are surrounded by people who are, you know, oh, this person just won the Victorian Young Citizen of the Year and this person's heading off to the UN next week to do this. And people who are doing such amazing things that you just feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm such a failure. Um, so I think that, is a, that is a point that is coming up again and again. Before we go to that point, um, I think, you know, Julia, I saw your hand waving up there and I, I think there is, there seems to be real conversations here from the conversations I've been having that there is how do we bring in that respect and recognition that actually all of us have these really significant contributions to make. And I think, you know, there's yes, young people get ignored and or dismissed or whatever. And the same thing happens at the other end of the spectrum. You know, we have this, this is a, a massive challenge and, you know, again, it's like, what are we seeing and valuing as contribution? Judy. So I just stuck my hand up at the, um, every time I hear that phrase baby boomer, I just think 
no, like, you know, the baby boomers have destroyed this land. Like I know so many activists, elder, you know, who are, they, it's, it's, it's the capitalist, it's the idiots, it's the selfish people. It's, you can't do a generational thing. And I know, I mean, it's particularly personal for me because when the pandemic happened, I thought, well, okay, you know, I'm a certain age, I should just move aside and let young people come through. I should just stop bothering. I'll just look after my elderly parents and my grandchildren and that's all I should do. And then I just thought, well, and there's all this out there, oh, the Karens, the Karens. And it's just, I find it quite hurtful. Like there aren't actually that many older women on in the media. I certainly, and there's nothing I can move aside from because nobody pays me for any work anymore anyway because I never made it into that sort of thing. So, you know, I just go, well, okay, I failed to get to a certain position that I can move aside from. So that obviously proves I should move aside because, sorry, Ali, but I just, you know, and you, and as an emerging person, you know, as an emerging artist, it was like, great, because I thought, yeah, one day I'm going to, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be supported for my work. People are going to give me grants. They're going to ask me to do things. And there's a certain fire in that, plus the energy you have for being a young person. And you go, well, I can live on no money because I'm a young person. And then you become an older person. You go, I'm still there. There's no, there's no grants for people who are still doing it 30 years on, even though they haven't hit the heights. It's hard. And, you know, obviously older people need to move aside. And, and there's, there's a certain very famous cartoonist. And I would really gladly that the, the world freed up the huge income he gets paid. But it's not going to happen. <laughs> but, you know, that's just that, that other thing. And on the, you know, I'm on social media a lot and you just hear, oh, boomers do this, oh, boomers do that. And boomers have destroyed the planet from somebody drinking bubble tea in a plastic cup through a straw. You know, that whole, that buying takeaway cups. Oh, I don't care how old you are, I hate you for doing it. <laughs> Greg, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, uh, well, um, I just wanted, uh, you know, like contribution and um, contribution is not an easy word, of course, um, in a, in the community, and um, you know, it can be un, un, you know, can be uncomfortable, I suppose, but rewarding when you get involved. And uh, and um, and I was very honoured when my community and the elders approached me um, and said, you know, Greg, you have to stand for council because we need. Uh, you know, a First Nations, we need an Indigenous voice in council because we want to take um, we want to take a lot of things uh, that propose from our community to take it to the next level because it, in, instead of it being tokenistic, we want it to make it real and you can be in that position where you can take it above and away from tokenistic to actually be in the position to make things happen and not that rhetoric which we're, we're used to. But uh, the contribution, um, from my point of view, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, uh, I see that as really important, um, not only for me um, in my quest to be involved in local councils um, and governments, of course, but um, very important for me to empower my community with my with this appointment appointment too as well. And the challenge that I saw that um, was there was no indigenous um, councillors in the last elections at all. And I thought, you know, we've got to change the, the culture of this place. We've got to change it up. 
Um, and that's why I put my hand up along with um, um, my other uh, my other sister girl down in Melton. And I said, you know, I've got an obligation here and I've got to contribute to um, to be that leader from our community and leading the way in regards to um, create that pathway for my uh, for our younger generations to follow in my footsteps too as well. My community in Shepparton, of course, it's um, we have uh, the heritage of politics um, come from the Yorta Yorta um, uh, tribe in regards to William Cooper and Doug Nichols. Um, you know, it's the it's the breeding ground. It's the birthplace of of politics, and I guess it was in my DNA um, uh, to continue the legacy of my of my elders um, as well. So I felt, um, you know, I need to step up and contribute here so that I can send some positive messages to my community to say, you know, we, we're not going to get anywhere if we sit back on our bums and not do anything and, and, and wait for everything to come to us. And at some stage, you know, we have to be entrepreneurial with our culture and the way that we present ourselves to as well. Um, and, you know, we, we do get state and federal government funding, but we, we, we all ought to be in a position to say, well, okay, um, at some stage that's going to stop. So we have to be um, we very we have to be a lot smarter in our business sense too as well. And one thing that I'm proud about the organisation that I'm chaired is that I've contributed to an increase in funding, an increase of employment, but also um, with that increase in employment and funding, we are a, a huge contributor to the economic fabric of Shepparton, and we are you know as as an organisation in Shepparton that employs 250 people. Um, so that then becomes a little bit of respect from our wider community to say, um, yeah, well, this organisation is going, is succeeding in a number of ways. And you take out, um, you know, the Aboriginal component of it and you take out and you include to say, well, here's an organisation which is respectable and also contributes to um, a whole range of uh, tourism and also economics to this town. Um, so if, um, you know, if you took out Rumbalara's uh, contributions of $50 million towards that organisation, if you took that out of Shevenon's economy, well, that's a huge slice as well. So, um, so contributions, um, uh, you know, are very important um, and from our people too as well to say that um, you have a responsibility um, to also contribute to um, the maintenance and exchange of our culture but also um, how you how you um, share that and continue that right throughout across the fabric of this community too as well, and do it in a way um, where it is in it from an educational sense too as well. I think that point you make about being tapped on the shoulder is also really important of like that validation from community that that you have something really significant to offer. Now. I'm aware of the time. I'm about to open it up for questions. Um, That's going so fast. I know, but I've got one more thing for each of you panellists that um, that I, if you can just keep your answers short but say what you need to say. Um, you know, Judy, Judy, to hear you talk about that age stuff and that feeling of like, you know, not making it. And I, I'm forever now going to have Judy Horacek didn't become a Kardashian in my head, just FYI. <laughs> you know? um, no, but very seriously, what you were saying is, is, you know, like it's devastating to hear that, that, you know, people who have contributed as much as you have. And, you know, for me personally, 
the books are the your books are the places I go for power and strength and I have since I was a teenager so I think it's it's devastating that all of us and that young people are feeling like they're not contributing enough or you know Ali your point about um you know, I'm not as good as that person because I haven't won 50 million awards and I'm not off to tour in New York. You know, like that is that is as devastating. You know, they're, they're both really important. Um, so the really big question that I only want you to spend a very short time answering, but I'm just going to throw it anyway, is what, what if you could just do one thing to change this, to change the, the infrastructure, um, you know, and by that I mean whether that's, you know, it could be something like a four-day work week randomly that came up for something else, or or it could be you know how how we acknowledge people. You know, if you could if you could change one thing, um, what would that be? And I'll I, any of you jump in there, and everyone else get your questions in the in the chat. There's been a few good ones already. Well, I've watched the um, other ones, and I, the things that have come up like that shorter working week. Um, for people who have employment, but I think a universal basic income is just really amazing. That just would give people a chance to um, do what they could do and contribute and contribute in the way that they could do it. And um, but I think what I would change is we've developed this culture that's where we're not respectful of each other, young or old, or and you know one of the ways you can see it is that people will just take random photos of people looking stupid or, you know, God, look at that outfit or, you know, I can't believe this Airbnb, it's such bad taste. Or So you're setting yourself up as a superior all the time and criticising people all the time for whatever decisions that they might make. So that's a, a kind of, you know, just the shaming, the sort of public shaming that's going on a lot. Um, and if we had more respect for people, then we'd have more respect for the environment and we wouldn't you know, we'd respect the environment. We wouldn't just dig it up and go, oh, look, it's here. You know, it's for us to use. We'll get out the resources. We'll we'll do all this kind of stuff. And that um, certainly comes back to First Nations people across the world where they just had such a different understanding of managing what they had rather than thinking, you know, I suppose we come from this Christian thing that God gave us all this stuff. So, of course, you know, it would be a sin not to, not to use it. So um, respect if I had to have one word. Thank you. Greg or Ellie? Yeah, Jump in first, Greg, or would you like to? You can go, Ellie. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, I um, I think that I think one of the problems that we have has become clear in this this conversation just now, um, and that is maybe misunderstanding and and making assumptions um, about about each other, about pe other people in our community. Um, and sort of, you know, jumping to those defensive um, assumptions that, that we can have and, and responses that we can have. Um, and I think that a really important thing that we need to be able to do in our community to be able to understand and respect other people's contributions um, is about um, connecting, uh, connecting people within the community and providing opportunities for people to experience each other's each other's work and each other's contributions and um I mean there's been all sorts of ideas thrown around around what this could look like and I mean personally one of the ones that I love which has come from one of my um uh, scholars that um, in a program that I used to run one of my university aged um students was around and I know it's been thrown around by other people before but it's around having a um a volunteer program for, for young people for, for either school-aged or, or school leavers um, where you have sort of a compulsory engagement in community activities of some kind um, and that I think obviously needs to be a really broad understanding of what that community activity is but it's a, it's a time when that person is supported um, you know it doesn't 
is is paid universal basic income so they, they don't need to be working and they can afford to be doing this but have the chance to be a part of some sort of community contribution activity um, and that that's set up as a mentoring relationship with with older and other people in the community and people of different different backgrounds and experiences so we do form those kind of connections and learn about about how other people are functioning and connecting and, and contributing um, so I think some sort of program like that whether that's on a small scale or a large large scale um, would be a really, really great way to, to build those connections and to build those chances to contribute in a respectful way, in a respected way. Lovely. Oh, How I about you, Greg? The, the, it's really important, um, you know, that we get that that message out to our to our to our people and to our young younger generations to say that um, you know your contributions towards keeping our country and our environment uh, clean and safe. Um, is absolutely imperative for uh, for for everyone, not just First Nations people, but for everyone, particularly in in our town where we have quite a number of um, you know campers and 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 we're surrounded by some great waterways, although they are very flooded at the moment. Um, but you know it's important for us to get the message to say that we are the keepers of the land and the country and our water waterways, which we call what we call Waka Lodge, which is country and waterways. Um, but we say to our younger generations, you know, you have a contribution to, um, you know, to make sure to maintain that that exchange of our culture, and you have a responsibility to educate people too as well, um, to educate people about the magnificent, uh, the magnificent country culture, and etc. And you know, the work that we do, um, that we continue to to say to the country fire authority and um, and. Department of Parks and, and Forestry is endure is um and um and to say to them when you are doing your and I I had this conversation with Millie today um we say to the firefighters and people that work in our country to say you have a con you have you know have a commitment and you also have a, a contribution to listen to the traditional owners of the land you know because you know we've been the keepers of this environment for quite some time um and we've been nurturing this country for quite some time and you know we 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 do have a a good understanding of the land and the environment and what's happened you know in an involving um uh, timetable of with the introduction of colonization and and land and etc and um and and you know what's transpired from there but we said when it comes to land management and also for the burning of our country when it comes to that, you need to listen to the traditional owners of the land and how we do that in a sense. Now, um, we do it in a controlled way, but in a safe way, but in a very educative way too as well. Now, you, you, we say to them, you need to contribute to the way that you burn the land and it's done in a very um, a sense from our point of view in an educative way. Uh, what we call cool burnings, and and, um, and we do it in that smart way where we do patchwork burns, and we say to um, you know firefighters and, and CFA and and everyone that's involved in that to say um, you need to do it in the way, um, and we will show you how to do that. But um, you know we want you to learn um, how how to control the fires instead of getting them out of hand, because a lot of fires um, are actually being set and you know have been um, you know been uh, you know, out of control by um, our CFAs by not controlling it, the, the fires properly. The bushfires back in Ash Wednesday, you know, were contributed towards 
you know, the CFA not doing their burning properly. So the way what we do it, we do it in the sense that say um, you should be able to, we do it in small burns, and you should be able to walk through that fire at any stage, and that fire should not go any higher than uh, your knees, and you should be able to exit the fire at any stage. But when the fire is put out and it controls and burns, you should be able to scratch the ground underneath and it's nice and cold. Um, so that doesn't ignite, reignite fire, flames a little bit further. So we say, you know, the contribution from that point of view is to say, well, we're committed towards uh, contributing to the environment and the country and how it's how it's actually is burned and the control of the fertiliser of the growth of, you know, the ash uh, should only be at a height where it actually becomes a fertiliser from there onwards. Instead of sending the, um, you know, a massive big burn and all of the, the smoke and the ashes go up in the air and it becomes environmental issues and it destroys our, um, our ozone layer and it also has effect on neighbouring communities. So the contribution, um, you know, has has greater implications from, um, you know, from listening listening to to our mob and taking, you know, some good advice on how to do it. We are the we are some of the um, you know the the we've got great great wisdom and and wise um, ancestors out there on how to do it, but we just haven't been consulted properly or or you know been considered in that factor. We're getting there. Greg, that's that, that's a lovely way to end, and it reminds me of Emily, who's a Trawlerwoy woman from the north of Taz, um, and she was really talking about the importance of of bringing well, she's talking men in suits onto country and kind of saying, "You can shut up now, stop worrying, like we've got it." And I, th- you know, it's 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 a little bit of a a shift in your mind to be like, "Well, the best way I can contribute here is to just like." shut up for a moment and listen to, you know, a different way of doing things, which is quite passive. Now, I know we've gone a bit longer than I wanted to go before we got to questions, and I'm sorry for anyone with really keen questions. Lauren, have you have you got a couple of questions you can pull out for yeah, us? Yeah, I do. And just in everyone's answer, we've got a short time, so be mindful of, of that so we can get through them. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a really beautiful question here that I think riffs nicely on something that Amanda has also said, and the question is from Rob. Rob says um, some years ago when I was 75, a 22-year-old uh, super amazing young woman told me that the very young and the old were natural partners. How do we open the door for young people and for older people to become partners? Maybe a question for all of our panellists. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> no, um, Rob's had a few lovely things in the chat and um, I know there's one specifically about what we can learn from, from First Nations people um, about the way that, that sort of elders and, and younger people in the community can, can learn from each other too. So I don't know if you want to kick us off, Greg. Or... Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Um, that, that's a great question actually, Rob. Um, one that um, we constantly are challenged with in regards to the elders and the young. And, um, you know, because of our um, our cultural exchange, it's, it's very important for us to keep the cultural exchange going. Um, and the respect structure, and, you know, people may understand or, uh, or know that respect is very uh, essential in Aboriginal culture. It's woven into our, our fabric. Um, but it's very hard for us with modern day for our kids to say, um, we say to them, you know, young man, you got, you, you know, or young people, you, you've got to show respect. You know, the Aboriginal culture is respect. But it's very hard, not what we've come to terms with, to say, well, that's very difficult when 
um, when our children don't know how to respect themselves first, and then we're asking them to respect their elders. So we now have to channel our energy and to say, well, we need to build up um, some skills to provide to our kids, the younger generation, to say, um, you you need to focus on, uh, you know, we need to provide them with that skills, a bit, a little bit of a toolkit to say, here, here's some of the things you need from a strength point of view to say, um, you need to respect yourself first. Um, and here are some some tools to, to start that. And then the respect for elders and everyone else will come uh, with that too as well. But initially, you need to look at the, you know, the, the emotional and, and the social and emotional well-being of that child, of that young person first, and then fix the inner part first, and then hopefully that strength, provide them with that strength and skills for them to go, go on and walk forward from there onwards. And then the respect, not only for the elders, but everyone in their community will follow. But more importantly, they will understand that they need to respect themselves first before they can grow any further. Yeah, it's a pretty powerful statement. I hope that's um, uh, answered that for you, Rob. It may not have. Ellie or Judy, do you want to jump in? <laughs> <laughs> um, I um, I never had children, but via my stepdaughter, I'm now the grandmother of three and they're very small. The eldest is four and a half and it's amazing. You know, I can see that the different thing, that that, that older, younger thing, it's just, it's, it's, very good you know it's lovely I love teaching them things and then they teach me stuff as well and also if you take a kid to the park you can run around going <laughs> but if you do that without a child <laughs> in your company then you know just like opening yourself up for big trouble so that's um I probably said enough about elders and young people <laughs> Ali so you <laughs> Um, I think it's it's what we've been been saying. It's about um, you know creating those spaces for connecting and building those mentoring relationships. And I really liked um, uh, Rob said it also in another comment earlier about in in the case of you know older and younger generations um, in workspaces and things, it's not necessarily about stepping aside, but about um, walking beside and being you know the older people being the mentors and you know using those those years of um, of experience and and you know all the things that they fought through to get to where they are to help support um, younger people and acknowledging that that things do change that you know like you were talking about before Judy expectations and what is normal and what is okay and and what is best practice is always going to change it's always going to be dynamic um and recognizing that you can be as an older generation you can be a part of of you know supporting and creating that space and and lifting up younger people to be able to work in that space too um so just about yeah, building those opportunities for connection mentoring and and sharing and learning I suppose <laughs> I, um, before we talk to another question, Lauren, I, I, so I'm going to disclose that Rob, who asked that question, has become one of my greatest friends. And next year, she's going to be twice my age, which I think is going to be like a great moment for celebration. Um, and I think what's been extraordinary in that is that recognition of particularly that invisibility of women's stories and how women have contributed over time. And, you know, one of the things that I've utterly loved about chatting with Rob has been that the history that I am learning about, not, not because we're talking specifically about women, but the history that I am learning just through those conversations and being a little bit shocked of like, whoa, we what, we who, then what, you know, and I, I, there's this real 
power in that that I think we're missing. I, I think it's a really significant gap in Western society anyway. Um, yeah, so good question, Great Rob. Question. <laughs> um, so Ali made a point earlier that formally recognised contributions are often quite exclusive in terms of who's privileged enough to have the time and the energy and the mental space and the funding to be able to make those contributions. And I think um, Morris, Morris or Maurice uh, asks a question that's kind of connected to that in terms of how can we ensure that the, um, the opportunity to contribute is inclusive? What do we need to change in the systems that facilitate us making contributions to incorporate features that support all people irrespective of their race or their gender or their wealth or their ability or geographic location, et cetera? Can we dismantle capitalism? Can we just like call that the answer? Tomorrow? <laughs> <Dumb>. <laughs> Look, that was the most animated anyone has got all night, Judy. So I think if you could just give us the first three steps that would get us 75% of the way there, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. If well, only, I think that yeah. universal basic, basic income would be a pretty good step. Yeah, that would be a really good start, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Question, it's a big question. Yeah. I mean, I think for, for me, some of that comes back to that recognition of like, how do we make everybody, how do we ensure everybody's basic needs are met as the very starting point so that you don't have to contribute in a particular way to be considered valid and valuable. And Greg, I think that goes to some of your point about, you know, you've got to be able to respect yourself before you can, you know, engage in some of those other relationships I, um, I'm a bit worried that we yeah. haven't learned the lessons that we seem to be learning in the pandemic, that we need to value health people, education people, carers of all kinds, that we need to, the people who are vulnerable, you know, even for our own protection, we need to protect the people who are vulnerable to, to keep our societies healthy. And And I felt like that, you know, for all the hideousness of the pandemic, I felt like actually we're coming down to an understanding of some things that are really, really important and fundamental. But it just seems to have, you know, said, no, it hasn't completely, but it, I, I feel like it's dissipating. I feel like everybody's going, no, but I can go overseas again now. And, you know, and um, we're, um, I mean, fingers crossed that we do, do um, that we become a better society through having had a pandemic, given that, there was no other good stuff about it. Do you think some of that, and I'll open this up to everyone, do you think some of that was also that, you know, there was things like job keeper there, or job seeker, whichever one it was, um, that gave people that moment of relief, you know, a space buffer to to actually commit to other people other than themselves because when we're fighting just to to survive we we don't have that capacity do you think some of that was I started two organizations while I was on JobKeeper in 2020 well done <laughs> so, and that you know it yeah it was a wonderful opportunity and it was also a wonderful opportunity because um you know a lot of the other young people that I was working with had a bit more space and a bit more you know t room to breathe um and to to put themselves into that kind of work and what we're finding that we, our Indigo Shire Youth for Climate Action Group, for example, has actually just had to wind down our work because everyone's back into real life, post-pandemic life, where you don't have your job keeper and you don't have all those, you know, other other supports and you've got all these different drains on your time. And um, it's just been really difficult to, to maintain, um, you know, that particular organisation in that context. Um, so, yeah, things like JobKeeper definitely help. Um, I also wanted to say around the idea of building 
you know, people's self-confidence and self-worth that Greg was talking about before and and how that can help them to know how to contribute. I think a big part of that is also just broadening our definition of what is contributing because I think we'd be very hard-pressed to find anyone in our community who's not contributing in some way. Um, And so it's about understanding that it's not just, you know, putting in those volunteer hours in those organisations. That's not the only way of contributing to our, our communities, but really making sure that we're acknowledging and celebrating contribution in a real variety of different ways will, you know, lead to people feeling more valued and respected and then being able to contribute more because they're, they're feeling that and that applause and, and you know, feeling that, that value in themselves. So. I think that's a really important point. And I was speaking to a friend recently who had been caring for her mother as her mother was dying and, and her mom actually made a miraculous recovery. But in that real critical time, um, her her mum said, I, I, I'm not worthy of this care. I'm not contributing anything. I feel useless. And, and the daughter said, you're providing unconditional love. Like that is enough. And not everyone can do that. Not everyone can receive that. But, you know, that recognition of what was there, I thought was like, whoa, I feel teary even thinking about that as we fail to see that as a contribution in ourselves. Um. Greg, did you want to, before I wrap us up, did you want to respond to that final bit of conversation? I just wanted to um, um, use an example. Recently, Shepparton were inundated with floodwaters um, and our council um, led up the the recovery uh, processes and et cetera. And, and, you know, the the amount of people that uh, I was really, uh, I felt really proud as being a councillor in our community when we're filling sandbags and we were we were setting up, um, you know, um, recovery centres in in town, et cetera, but just around the little acts of kindness that were were done by the community, um, and you know, and I, and I think um, it was mentioned before, uh, and I do don't know who mentioned it before, but um, what was really I felt really proud about was. Um, and I was there as a councillor filling sandbags with the rest of my community. Now, I was filling the sandbags, and at the sandbag station, we had people from all colours and creeds and cultural backgrounds, everyone pitching together, putting sandbags together and and putting them on trailers, putting them on trucks. Um, So that to me was just one example to say, um, and, you know, you look at the couple of the, the statements from the Democrats in the last, you know, couple of days about, you know, about not involved in the, in, in the voice project and et cetera, which is quite unfair because I don't even know, nothing has been said about the, the voice for another 12 months or so. But, you know, uh, them talking about regional communities. Well, that here is an example of how communities, doesn't matter about your colour or creed, they were under, in across the situation how the community threw away anything in regards to discrimination, colour or creed, they all went together and pulled together over a flood situation to help out their fellow neighbours and et cetera. It was one of the, uh, a situation where you just felt so proud as, a, as an Australian person, doesn't matter what I'm first nation, I'm still, you know, I'm still Australian along with everyone here on this panel today and everyone visiting as well. Australian history, Aboriginal history is Australian's history or vice versa. It's, you know, you can go both ways. But to see all of these people pulling together and helping out um, their, ni- their their neighbour and their community um, uh, neighbour was just to me so spiriting and so uplifting. Um, and at the same time, as well, 
um, we were sharing meals which were donated from Good Samaritans in our community. And that was Turkish food. It was um, Greek food. It was, um, you know, from Red Rooster, McDonald's and et cetera. So it was amazing because we talk about multiculturalism, we talk about prejudice and we talk about racism. Well, all of that is thrown out the frigging door when you have a crisis situation. People just do goodwill acts. Um, and it's just one thing that you think, oh, my God. Now, I took a photo of that so that when I get to and do speaks about, you know, Aboriginal culture and et cetera, and, you know, and people say, oh, you know, your culture are very, you know, you, you go and do your own thing. And I say, no, hang on, wait a minute. Here's here's one example of, of no one discriminating, no one disseminate. It's, it is goodwill at its best, and this is how it can work in every community in Australia. There's some goodwill. Um, and why does it take a natural disaster to pull a community together in that situation? It shouldn't. We should have. It was a lovely story I heard on the radio about um, some young people who'd finished year 12 and it was muck-up day, but instead of that they were filling sandbags and they said, well, this is our community. Why would mm. we do anything mm. else, you know? Yes, yeah. we finished yeah. year 12. Yes, it's kind of big, but this is just far, far more important. Yeah. So I don't think yeah. young people are selfish, Ali. I just, wanna, I just do want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I think young people are fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I look, I think that's a really, I'm really sorry we have to wrap it up now. I think that's a really powerful way to end, Greg, and that, you know, we are facing massive disruptions. You know, we know that this is just the beginning and I'm terrified of that. And the kernel for me is this is an opportunity for us to care for each other, to be cared for, to connect with each other through, you know, the sandbagging, the, you know, whatever it is. And that, as Ali has said, I think in the chat, like that opportunity to contribute and feel like you're a valuable, valid human being. And and there are so many different ways that could be sandbags. It could be massages. It could be cartoons to make you laugh and forget cartoons to show you where the world is, you know, educators, all of these different things, I think is that if there's anything that we can look forward to in the future around the crises, <laughs> you know, it's, it's that meaning. And there's research that shows that some people's mental health is often the best in times of real crises, even though obviously then there's a whole lot of other repercussions, but that there is something that gets fulfilled then. And I think, you know, to your point, Judy, maybe we can learn from that and extend, and your point, Greg, extend beyond the crises where we can hold those lessons and, and preemptively do this stuff. Um, so a huge thank you to all of you for, for coming along for your amazing comments, Greg, Judy and Ali, um, and to Women's Health, Goblin Northeast and Lauren, thanks for wrangling the questions. Um, Amanda, I'll, I'll hand it over to you to just to close and we can get out almost thank on time. Thank you. I, that was wonderful. Thank you. And I started writing notes and asking, wanting to ask questions. I was like, I don't want to miss a word of this. So um, thank you so much, Ali, Judy and Greg, and just fantastic conversation. Um, and Millie, as, as always, beautifully brought together. Thank you. Um, and Lauren, thank you for wrangling the questions. Um, I'm really not going to say anything. This is the third of our series. Um, and, you know, I'm really hoping that we can continue conversations like this. Um, and it's really wonderful to make the space for this. So, um, you know, I feel like that's our contribution. The space has been made and you have all filled it beautifully. Thank you for your contributions. And thank you to everybody who's, who's come along this evening, asked questions and been here and used your faces and your hands and done all those things because it's been beautiful to see you. So thank you everybody and good night.